you are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a global vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review Podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annelika Moy, and with me today is Luisa Giannini, with whom I'll be discussing contesting the international criminal law, practices of resignification of head of state immunity in the Al-Bashir case. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will furthermore be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Go Ways Flirt FM. So welcome, Louisa. How are you? Hi, Annalika. Good. How are you? Uh, thank you for the invitation. So a brief introduction to myself. My name is, as said, Louisa Giannini. I'm doing my PhD in the Pacifico Catholic University in Rio de Janeiro. And so I'm here to talk a little bit about this research. And that's lovely. Could you start with explaining a little bit what is the head of state immunity? So immunities that head of states possess, it's what we call functional immunities, which means they possess this kind of immunity because of the office they are occupying. This means that the state has this immunity and its officials because they are the state while the office are entitled to these immunities while they are in office. So we usually associate immunities as a necessary negative prerogative, but its institution in international law had the purpose of assuring that uh, states were equal before this very international law. So in order to prevent actions for foreign countries that could jeopardize the sovereignty of the state, like with the arrest of foreign leaders, so the doctrine of sovereign immunity was put in place. Uh, so there's a very well-known story about the first time the doctrine of uh, sovereignty immunity was first attested in, international, uh, in law in general. So it happened in the United States in a Supreme Court decision. So in this case, the court was evaluating the presence of a vessel in the United States territorial waters. So they were evaluating if it was enough for district court to have jurisdiction over the situation. So let me tell you a bit about the background of the case. So uh, there were in 1810, two American citizens, they were sailing on their way to Spain and their commercial schooner, uh, it was seized by the French Navy, which at that time was uh, ruled by Napoleon. So the issue in the Supreme Court arose once the vessel found itself back in U.S. waters. At this point, this vessel, it had been armed and commissioned as a French warship. So before the court, France presented the argument that the schooner was a ship of war. So now it belonged to France. So which means it was an arm of the emperor and thus was entitled to the same immunity privileges as the imperial of France would have at that point which means that no U.S. court would be able to exercise any kind of jurisdiction. So that was the situation before the court. And when ruling the situation, the Supreme Court had two possibilities. It could understand that the United States had an absolute and exclusive jurisdiction over its territory, which would grant the U.S. the authority to adjudicate the conflict. Or the second option would be to interpret that all states, they have equal rights and independence which would prohibit the United States to have any jurisdiction since the vessel became a property of the French government. 
So in other words, we had a dilemma here. We had a, a dilemma between the respectively territorial jurisdiction and sovereign immunity. So the Supreme Court considering the Schooner became a national armored vessel commissioned by and in the service of the Emperor of France, they adopted the second position. They stated that the United States did not have jurisdiction to determine whether the property of the vessel belonged to the American citizens. So as we can see through this case, which is called the Schooner Exchange case, because exchange was the name of the vessel. So in this, this tells us that international law sovereign immunities have been developed in order to assure that a sovereign state and its affairs are not bound by any authority originated from another country. In this sense, the norm of immunity, it comes to protect the state's sovereignty prerogatives before any foreign interference, which means that not only the state, but also its representatives are protected from external scrutiny. So conventionally, the doctrine of immunity is expressed by the notion that one sovereign power does not have authority to exercise jurisdiction over another. Now, if I understand you correctly, that state immunity comes down to you cannot arrest or try another state's official. Now, does this apply to all officials or only to a few officials of the state? It will be uh, for a select few, of course. They, they usually belong to the highest office of the state, the ones that are actually need to represent the states before foreign jurisdictions. Also, some minor officials can be entitled to immunities that we see uh, with the diplomatic and consular immunities because they need to go to do actions representing the states. But mostly in this case that we're discussing, they, they belong to the highest officials of the state. Okay, that's interesting. And now your research specifically focused at the Al-Bashir case. Could you briefly explain what is the Al-Bashir case? What was it about? So the, I will see further ahead this issue of immunity. We will have a lot to, to impact on the Bashir case. But it all started with a UN Security Council resolution that was issued in 2005 that referred the situation of Darfur to the International Criminal Court, which will be referred by me from now on as the ICC. So when the Security Council issues a resolution that sends the situation to the ICC, it triggers Article 13 of the Rome Statute the Constitutive Treaty of the ICC. So a brief parenthesis here is like, Article 13 establishes three ways of activating the ICC jurisdictions. The first one is through a request from a state party, so a state that signed the Rome Statute. It can ask the ICC to investigate and prosecute a case. The second option is by the Office of the Prosecutor. So the prosecutor has the prerogative of also looking if she, in the case now, we have a female occupying the, the office of the prosecutor, which is Fatou Ben Souda. So if she considered that there, is, there are crimes taking place in the territory of a member state of the ICC, she can initiate an investigation. So this is the second one. And the third and final, the final which is of interest for us, is uh, the final way of activating the ICC jurisdiction is by a referral from the United Nations Security Council. So the difference in this last mechanism is that it is very different from the other two because it does not require the state that is being referred to the court being a member state. In other words, the country being referred never gave its consent to be a part of the court through signing or rat and ratifying the constitutive treaty of the court. So coming back to the Bashir case, 
when the UN Security Council sent the situation of Darfur to the court, it was the first time that this mechanism was being triggered. And this is an important aspect to emphasize, because in my opinion, most of the problems that will appear in this case, and I will talk about some of them here, they will derive from the fact that this situation was unprecedented and some specific legal aspects were not clear. So once the Office of the Prosecutor received the referral from the UN Security Council, it started as an investigation in order to see which crimes were perpetrated and by whom. And one of the individuals by, found by the ACC to be involved in these crimes perpetrated was its then sitting head of state, Omar al-Bashir. So in 2009, and this also serves us as an example of how justice is in a slow process, so in 2009, the ACC issued its arrest warrants related to the situation of Darfur, one of them for al-Bashir. Since the ICC cannot start a trial without the presence of the defendant, the case against al-Bashir never went to the trial phase of proceedings, remaining in the pre-trial stage. Now the ICC... Can you continue? What kind of criminal activities are we talking about? What kind of crimes were committed in Darfur? So in the, it's interesting that you pointed that. Uh, in the case of Bashir especially, uh, when they issued the first arrest warrant, there was only four counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Because the pre-trial chamber, the one that issued the arrest warrants, they did not consider that there was enough evidence to issue a arrest warrant for also the crime of genocide. But uh, the Office of the Prosecutor appealed this decision. And uh, again, when, uh, when evaluating this to decide, the, the pre-trial chamber decided that to add the crime of genocide, but this is also uh, raises an issue that happens frequently with the International Criminal Court. We have uh, different law traditions. We have this, mostly the civil law tradition and common law tradition, which gives very much different standards in terms of analyzing evidence. So what happened in this case, it was a change, especially the change in the composition of the pretrial chamber, which when evaluating the appeals was, had a different composition from two different judges. So they evaluated that at the moment they considered to be enough evidence to go for the crime of genocide. So in gen the, the last arrest warrant issued, which is the one that is standing now, it goes for the three crimes, the war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. All right, so why is Omar al-Bashir not yet tried and arrested? So that's the thing. Uh, the problem is that once the ICC issues its arrest warrants, now the ICC depends on the member states to arrest and surrender, in this case Bashir, to the court to stand trial. So the case made the headlines precisely due to this issue. So there's been a handful of times that al-Bashir has left, have visited many foreign countries since the arrest warrants were issued. As of now, I don't have the count, but there's a website that's called Bashir Watch, and they keep track of all the official visits that Bashir makes. So they add there and so in order to make pressure to the issue. So the, the thing here is that many of the countries that were visited by Bashir were also member states of the International Criminal Court. And this is how the problem was raised. Not only that he was traveling, but that member states of the ICC that have a legal obligation towards the ICC were not arresting Bashir once he was in their territory. And this was because of state immunity of 
yes. Mr. Bashir. Now, has there been some sort of backlash over this? So yes, and here is where it comes uh, to the point of my research. Uh, all of I said now was to give a good background into the issue that I'm currently researching on. So which was what happened once the states did not comply with the arrest warrants. So well, uh, the ICC itself has little power to do something against a state that does not comply with arrest warrants. What usually takes place is that they request, uh, they request an explanation by the state and the situation remains more or less the same. It is interesting to see how the states justify their non-compliance with the, with the arrest warrants. They don't, don't do simply not complying. They usually give them their, their explanation for not doing so. So the argument for, that they use for not complying with the arrest warrants uh, issued by the ICC comes back to the point that I raised earlier about Sudan not being a member of the ICC. So in general, when a state joins the Rome Statute, you know, the, the treaty of the ICC, it agrees that for any process before the court, uh, any official capacity will be deemed irrelevant. So this is clearly stated in Article 27. This means that no head of state of government or other member of government as we talked before on the, the issue of immunities, they will not be able to claim their immunities before the ICC. But neither the statute nor the, the Security Council resolution explain the case for United Nations Security Council referrals, since these countries never consented to being part of the treaty. And the Vienna Convention of the Law of the Treaties of 1969, it clearly has a point about binding third states to obligations they did not consent to. So this is a problem before uh, international law. How is the situation of these states that are being referred by the Security Council to the ICC? Are they in a situation that is analogous to a member state? So this issue has never been cleared. So coming back to the issue here then, so these countries they, that received Bashir, they did not hand him to the ICC because they claim to have a problem. There are two contrasting obligations. One before the court to arrest and surrender, and the other one is before international customary law that assures that Bashir has immunity once his state never consented to the provisions of the Rome Statute. So when they're arguing for not complying with these arrest warrants, they evoke Article 98 of the Rome Statute, which states, and I will read here, the court may not proceed with a request for surrender or assistance which would require a requested state to act inconsistently with its obligation under international law with respect to the state or diplomatic immunity of a personal property of a third state, unless the court can first obtain the cooperation of the third state for the waiver of the immunity. We may summarize just a little bit. What, uh, in this case, you mentioned Sudan, has said is, well, we are not arresting Mr. Bashir because we are not a member of the ICC. We have never signed up to this International Criminal Court and neither has Darfur, neither has Mr. Bashir and his nation signed up to the International Criminal Court. Am I correct in summarizing it like that? Yes, uh, you, you cannot state it clear. And how is the position of Sudan before the ICC? what is exactly how it fits once the United Nations Security Council sends the situation to the ICC. It's not clear how is the status of Sudan before the court, if it's of a member state or not. 
because this is an unprecedented situation in international law. So the juridical uh, definitions, they need to be very clear in order for us to have a grasp on the whole situation. So these countries, they are saying, okay, we understand and we respect that if, for example, in the situation of, let's think of South Africa, South Africa has signed and ratified the Rome Statute, is a member state. So for these purposes of the court, any state official of South Africa do not have immunity before the ACC, but Sudan never done so. So this is where the problem for them arise. And then they have two obligations. They have to respect the immunities as a fellow sovereign, and they also have an obligation before the court. And they see this contrasting position that they are in, a problem that they now have to deal with. Now, in this contrasting position, because indeed, as you explained, you have on the one hand the duty to the court that you subject to as member state, but also the duty to respect foreign sovereigns and foreign countries as a sovereign country. Now, does it make a difference, either in your research or in your opinion, that these are not simple crimes, they are not speeding tickets, these are genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanities, these are pretty severe crimes. Well, in my view, and here goes uh, into my opinion from researching this for almost six years. So uh, when I look into this, when there's also this issue with genocide, for example, in the, uh, to have it present in the arrest warrant, I think they're all thinking of how to make this issue a very much, uh, uh, very legally strong. So Sudan is part of the Genocide Convention and the Genocide Convention, first, it's from 1948, but it foresees that a court should be created to deal with the issue of genocide. So they are trying to create and make a movement in order to back this issue and have it strong in order to argue. Because otherwise, I, I know we're, do, we're dealing with international crimes, which is the, the worst crimes that can be committed. But Anyway, we're dealing with something that we're, we need to be very careful in how are we going about this. I'm really for the court and uh, I really think we should have the prosecution of those international crimes, but I, I think here we need to be careful and we need to be uh, able to create a strongest as possible system to deal with those crimes. So the way it's happening right now, and uh, this is what I want to go into the, my dissertation, and something that I need to, to look more into the case and the arguments to develop. But when looking into the situation, we need to make it so that there's no like legal uh, fallouts. So this is the point, like uh, this African mass withdrawal strategy that came, like that the African countries uh, discussed in a meeting of the organization of the African states, when they're thinking about withdrawing from the ICC, this happened as a result of this process. So, because of them arguing uh, and we need to, to look into those arguments and one of my goals that I, I think I can talk a little bit more, more about this further on but one of my goals is to detach these kind of arguments and see what kind of arguments we need to take it seriously because in order for the ICC to be a very strong court that is able to deal with all these situations it has to deal with the criticism so that it can improve. Right now, there is an ongoing process of uh, external mechanism reviewing the process of the court. And there are many issues being raised by them. So I think only dealing 
with all of these problems, the court is able to be stronger. So I, in here, I think so it's, it's kind of difficult to say, uh, I think this international crimes should be dealt with, but they should be dealt with in a way that we have the legal backing to make into a very strong case. Because what happened recently with the court, maybe two or three years ago, in the Bamba case, the ICC tried the whole case. And then the appeals, the decision was reverted. And then he was set free. So even in the ICC, this is a system that depends on the defendant being, uh, the, the case being successful in order to have reparations. Otherwise, they cannot do it. So these victims, they were all left without their reparations. And also the, the case needs to be strong in order for, for us to have success. And I think the court has a lot to improve so that we can get into this point. So I think it's important. Underlying arguments that your research cover. So before this scenario, like my research seeks to look into the developments of the Bashir case in order to analyze the different actors that are engaging with the situation and what are the arguments that are being made. So since this is still an ongoing research, I'm currently in the stage of mapping all the actors that have a relevant voice in this debate because it extrapolates the institution and the state's parties. I'm not looking only at African states and uh, ICC, United Nations Security Council. So we have seen in the past 30 years from the International Criminal Court Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, to nowadays the heavy engagement from the civil society in issues of international criminal law. So this is something that is really much happening in the, in the Al-Bashir case. So when Bashir travels to South Africa and there's a case ongoing in the Supreme Court to discuss whether to arrest him or not while they, he was in their territory, there's NGOs backing this process and making the process go forward. There's NGOs acting in the ICC. One of the countries that were visited by Bashir, uh, which was Jordan, once the ICC requested uh, explanations from Jordan, Jordan appealed the decision and it created a space for more discussion. The ICC invited scholars to argue on their position in the situation of immunities. So there are many actors that go beyond the institutional and the state level engaging with this issue and having an argument in this issue. So I think it's very important and my objective here is to map them and be able to draw a, a, a map and say, these are all the actors engaging and these are the ones being more relevant. So when engaging with the decision, the court is using the scholarly debate or not. So my goal here is understanding the legal reasoning of these actors. So what is the point they made for or against? Because especially here, we have a spectrum of opinions. So they are, the ones that argue that Bashir does not hold immunities, they have different ways of justifying this. And the same goes for those who believe his immunities still stand. So by looking at this, I want to evaluate the developing of these reasonings, which other actors' interpretations are being taken into account. So with this, I want to be able to affirm which actors can be said to have a voice in the discussions in international criminal law nowadays. And what was your reasoning for studying this topic? So um, the way I see, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm developing mainly two arguments. The first one is about norm change. And this is what I just explained, how are different actors engaging with these norms and how their voices are having an impact on how we interpret norms. 
And the second point is one about how this relationship, and especially I want to talk straight to the argument about is the ICC targeting Africa? I think every conference I go about the ICC, I have one of, I see one, someone making a question about is the ICC targeting Africa? This is a point that is constantly being reiterated. But I think it's a very, very bad point to be made because I think it creates a problem in how we address the issue. Once we ask, is the ICC targeting Africa? My plain answer will be no. But the goals that I have with this research is precisely this, is precisely to draw away the different kind of arguments, to take those straightly, maybe very much politically backed arguments and detach them from the ones that are, are saying, no, we have something here. We want to improve the relationship, especially between Africa and the court, because African countries were heavy enthusiasts of the court when the court was built. So one of the, the, the main reasons is to address precisely this point. So uh, these countries, they are engaging in their scene, have these structural problems. Many times they, they try to address an issue and something, for example, I'll mention a couple uh, examples that happen within, within the system of the court, for example, is these countries, they've been constantly asking for an explanation by the court. But the ICC is constantly stating that Article 27 states that no immunities hold before the court. So Sudan doesn't have immunity, but then they raise different things in international law that could back their position. But the ICC doesn't go to address. When the ICC invited those scholars to present petitions from amicus curia petitions before the court, it was a revolution. Everyone was ecstatic thinking this is something, the ICC is going somewhere, it's addressing the issues. But when the ICC makes a decision right after those petitions, it sticks to the previous point. It doesn't take into account all those stories that were, I mean stories, but I, I, I want to say the, the positions and the legal reasonings, it doesn't take them into account in their reasoning. In the ideal world, would it be a solution if all countries signed up to the ICC? Oh, this is a difficult question because I think yes and no. In a way, it would be ideal because we will go away from this idea that we have now we can prosecute most African countries because they are part of the ICC, but we can still not prosecute most of the permanent members of the Security Council because they are heavily against. And we have even the United States doing taking measures to prevent the ICC from investigating. So in a way, I think it would be very, very much helpful. But I think the ICC has a long way to go in terms of improving its procedures. There's a lot of things that need to be dealt with, uh, transparency in the office of the prosecutor. And I invite everyone that is interested in this topic to look at the reports that were made by major NGOs about the process and, and the major issues that they think the ICC should address. So this is a topic that is very much interesting and I think it can generate a lot. Uh, they're doing these studies. They, they've done most of the year writing those reports and making a study and pointing out what do they think the ICC should improve. So I think it will be a two-way street. The ICC, the, the universal membership, it's ideal, of course, to have the court dealing with the issues, but there's also many procedural things that the ICC should address. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to the Double Politics Review podcast. 
on today's topic, which was the contesting international criminal law practices of resignification of head of state immunity in the Al-Bashir case. Now, if you all enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. 